You're listening to the Northern Hills Baptist Church Podcast. I was blinded, you gave me eyes to see. I was going under, you reached out to me. Welcome back to the Northern Hills Baptist Church Podcast. My name is Justin Love. I'm your host producer with my friend, BJ Terry. Hi, how's it going? Pastor Stephen Chichester is out for today, so we're with Pastor Dr. Tom Willoughby. Ooh, that sounded official. <laughs> we have a great lineup for you guys today. We have royalty news uh, today. A man, a woman, and a dog walk into a Walmart. It sounds like a joke. <laughs> yeah. Notre Dame, the Notre Dame fire, and our main topic today, why is it vital that Christians have a right view of the cross and who died on it? That and more on today's podcast. Stay tuned. Kicking off with today's show, we have some royalty in the news. I don't know how much you guys follow uh, Prince Harry and the just Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. Do you guys follow them whatsoever? No. No. I find it a little <laughs> strange that Americans like are so enveloped with the royal family and everything that they do. Didn't we fight a war, you know, like almost 200 years ago, 240 some years ago to uh, make sure we didn't have to do that? Prince Harry and the Duchess of Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, officially have their own Instagram account. Uh, there apparently there was an uproar that she had to delete her personal account because the Crown wouldn't allow it. Well, there are security concerns. That, that is that is yeah. true. I mean, it's not like she's a public figure or anything, right? And you know, in line for it the Crown, be taken hostage and. Held for large sums of money. No, that's not possible. Anyway, they uh, they already have 4.6 million followers on the account that was created two weeks ago. Uh, the first post two weeks ago already has 1.2 million likes and 43,000 comments. That is, a, uh, I understand the royalty, and that's cool, uh, especially since. You know, Meghan Markle is an American citizen. It's cool to see that, you know, an American became royalty, I guess. It's every little girl's dream. Yeah. And I Unless she grows up, she marries the prince mm -hmm. who's the heir to the throne. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like steps out of a Disney film. And it actually happened. Yeah. For for one person. Yeah. So I don't know if she, if Meghan Markle, uh, the Duchess of Sussex, ever grew up with that, but... Hey, the dream came true, right? So anyway, we're going to move on to a, a story that I found a couple days ago, and I just had to bring this on the show for us. I wanted to keep it a little secret uh, before uh, we started recording because it's just too good to... It's a Walmart story. It's a Walmart story. Uh, Those are the best. <laughs> <laughs> From security fam films and... So a man, a woman, and a dog walk into the Walmart. And Pastor Tom said this sounded like a joke. And well, oh man, it it's pretty funny. <laughs> last Wednesday night, uh, last Wednesday night, chaos exploded into a Wisconsin Walmart. Lisa Smith, age forty six, along with her son Benny Van, age twenty six, and their dog Bo, decided to give a little bit of a public show along with some of shop some of the shoppers uh, at their local Walmart. Starting this off, this wild tale, Lisa and her dog Bo were shoplifting while Benny, the son, was creating chaos somewhere else in the store. The dog was unleashed at the time when they came into the store and began to run around the store chasing other customers while Lisa was pulling displays apart and grabbing them to take. So she was like tearing these displays apart, putting them in the cart, and then walking off. So after security told her to leave, Lisa, encountering the police, began to practice karate in the parking lot to fight the police off. 
That would have been something to see. I bet she looked like Dwight. <laughs> the, it, every member of this family is involved in some way, shape, or form. Bo, the dog, was criminalized, too, as he tried to run off with a box of Jiffy Corn Muffin Mix. How low can you be to criminalize a dog? <laughs> That's just wrong. Lisa, after having her karate bout with the police, then tried to kick out a window of the police cruiser. Okay. And apparently, this is all on video. This is this has got to be the best police training video. Like, how that work for something? <laughs> Not very well. Um, so while all, no one has ever been in the back of a squad car and tried to kick out the windows, and it's gone well. Right. I mean, like they don't imagine that that's going to happen. <laughs> There's a reason they don't put door handles in the back of those cars too. Hey, she does practice karate, Tom. All right. Yeah, oh, yeah. That, she does practice karate. Well, while all this was going on, her son, Benny Van, got Bitty full... <laughs> Benny Van, or Benny Hen, whichever one, got, hey. full, <laughs> got fully naked, started running around the store. It sounds like he's three years old. <laughs> started try, He's 26. I know. <laughs> started trying to run around the store to put new clothes on without wanting to pay for them. Then he is finally arrested after threatening to run over the police with his scooter. Like this, this story gets stranger. Can't, can't make this stuff up. No, this story gets stranger and stranger. I want to see the uh, the body cam footage of all of this. Not not of not of Benny, but the rest <laughs> of, the of him running around naked <laughs> on a scooter. On the scooter, both Benny and Lisa have been charged with disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, lewd behavior, and retail theft. Bo, on the other hand, was uh, Bo the dog was released with a warning and brought to the <laughs> local humane association, which is wrong, obviously, because he's the only one with got away with anything. That's right. 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 The only one that made it out with Prejudice. the corn mix. But hey, apparently, it, sometimes crime does pay. Sometimes crime does pay. Well, anyway, moving the show. That was a terrible joke. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving the show along. We we got to talk about this. The, the Notre Dame fire. Um, this is really hard to, to see yesterday. Um, if you didn't see, you must live under a rock. Unfortunately, the Notre Dame Cathedral was consumed by... Uh, by fire uh, Monday afternoon. It's a cathedral in Paris. Uh, the structure and the two bell towers are iconic. So if you've seen um, any movie in Paris ever, uh, like Hunchback uh, of Notre Dame, or um, really if you've seen a movie that takes place in Paris, you've probably seen this this cathedral. It was built what, back in the 12th century? Yeah, 12th uh, century. 1100. Or 1100, yeah, yeah. 12th century. 12th century. Around the Crusades. Yep, yeah. and it wasn't finished wasn't finished being built for like 250 years. Um, and anyway, the, the bell towers that are iconic still remain standing along with the, um, the large stained glass circle, uh, that's Rose window, the Rose window. That's correct. Oh man. That's right. Um, they so those things are still intact, and luckily they were able to get uh, a lot of relics out, a lot of historical relics and art pieces. I, I didn't know this, but the crown of thorns that is rumored. Uh, to have been worn by Christ on the cross is actually was actually stored in Notre Dame. Because everyone was really quick to pick that up the day that he was crucified That's right. as a public enemy. That's right. Oh, I want that. <laughs> like they wouldn't have just thrown that aside like it was just yeah. any old trash. Yeah. It's like they someone was very quick when they saw Jesus stumble and fall to the wall to yeah. take a piece of chalk and circle around where his hand touched so that today... Millions of travelers can come, you can come and see and the place where Jesus, Jesus touched. touched when he fell on the Via Dolorosa. <laughs> you could touch exactly where Jesus touched, like everybody else. Or as Luther said, we have, what, 13 of the original 12 apostles buried <laughs> in the Vatican. <laughs> well, so uh, what's really cool about this, you know, unfortunately, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of damage. The roof is almost, if not completely, gone. Um, the, the original spire is completely gone, unfortunately, but what is cool is that billionaires and companies from France are, have already donated over $400 million, uh, to help, uh, restoration funds. I think, I just think that's really cool. Um, they'll get more. Oh yeah. Uh, international aid will, will come in to help to restore this. Um, other historical foundations I'm guessing will, will help. Forgive the, the potential snarkiness of this, but there is the factor that you're giving to 
the Catholic Church that has so like is there the chance that there might be this thought of this could purchase an indulgence of some sort or there, perhaps well, what's interesting to me but is that well, the, the, I gave this therefore I get that's this. right well the Catholic Church hasn't offered up any money yet but they have what was reported a few years ago was like 14 trillion dollars that they could just liquidate and pay for things so why aren't why aren't they putting up for this well why jump in uh, yeah, mean, if everyone else right <laughs> money's flowing in right are. now just hold off <laughs> we're, we're going to pay for this eventually offering it money for a favor that's right you'd rather do that that's right sell all your stuff well the the cause of the fire is still unknown uh, unfortunately i saw that there was a lot of people who were uh giving credence to islam terrorists that that kind of stuff and i was like that, yeah. is that even necessary right well, now well the report today said that there's no indication as yet that there that it was an intentional act it's just Ex- a, it's just a common problem in france right now with immigration and yeah. stuff well they were renovating yeah. that part anyway mm-hmm. so they had the they had the trusses and uh, the uh, scaffolding and everything up in that section exactly fire alarm if you look at the timeline the first uh, fire alarm went off and they didn't see any fire, any flame or anything. And it was what, an hour later and the second one went off all of a sudden and then they saw everywhere. flames, but it was in the part that they were actually mm-hmm. doing the reconstruction on. So it, it kind of stands to reason that something relative to the reconstruction process yeah. might've taken place. But, and I know, would really like different to, things could happen. Yeah. And I would really like to chalk this up to an accident. You know, I, I'd rather it, if someone is to blame, um, then obviously they need to be held accountable if it was purposeful. But I would really like to see this as hey, this was this was an accident. Plus the terrorist mo, isn't it more people die? Yeah, and no one dies. Rather than we're just trying to destroy a building or exactly. something. exactly because you can destroy any amount of buildings. Yeah, and say oh look look what we did i'm not buying that yeah no so uh right now it is being lean it is leaning towards uh as being pronounced an accident but right now they still have to go through and tom uh you were saying before the podcast that they still have to go in and make sure everything's structurally sound they have to make sure that the stone isn't cracked or you know before they even start the restoration process the stone has to you know be okay have to dry it all the way out that takes forever yeah and you were saying that it, it that they were estimating that it might take what fifty some years to cut to complete re- yeah, renovations. Literally now? decades, because they the last estimate I heard was that it could be at least ten years before the first visitor is allowed in. Wow! Because what they'll probably do is as they renovate a part of it, they'll try as quickly as they can to let visitors come in because you need you need the oncoming tourists yeah. to help perpetuate the giving and, and it was et cetera, like 50, su- 50 some thousand people go there every single year. Yeah. So they're going to try and open it up as quick as they can, but, but it's just, there's, it's going to be a long process. Yeah. So, well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about as we come up to Easter, why it's so vital that Christians have a right view of the cross and the person who died on it. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. As we gather around this table, we remember and proclaim, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There's nothing to fear and everything to gain, and so we gather here to Step tells the story as the people join the feast. This Sunday, last Woo-hoo. year it was super early. Um, this year is it's very very late. Um, 
But I wanted to take this episode right before Easter and talk about why it's so important that we have a right view of the cross, why it's so important we have a, a right view of Jesus. And so let's start off for, for those who of our listeners who are like, you know, maybe they've been Christians for a long time, like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to tune out and you know, I'm going to pause it here and go do it. Why is it important that we need to constantly come back to this idea of making sure that we have the right view, um, the right view of the cross, the right view of Jesus, and making sure that we actually know the Jesus that died upon the cross? Who was he? You know, Paul said that he resigned himself to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the idea behind that statement um, kind of brings into, into focus that the preeminent element of Christendom is the crucifixion of Christ. What happens there, what that means for us as believers. Um, and so just as, even as your initial question, uh, it begins with, all right, so then before we even talk about the crucifixion, who is Jesus? Well, in short, if you can actually do that, um, he's the God-man. He is 100% God at the same time he was 100% man. He existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past, so he didn't come into existence. He's always existed. But he came into earth via uh, a supernatural encounter that the Holy Spirit uh, placed upon uh, the Virgin Mary so that she had never had uh, sexual relations with a man. And uh, she became impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and the baby that's born is actually Jesus himself, 100% God, 100% man. And so he's, he's raised, lived some 30-plus years on the earth, and then um, goes to the cross. From a human perspective, what looks like an act of murder, but from a, a divine perspective and from a prophetic perspective, it's a sacrificial act whereby he, being the only sinless person to ever walk the face of the planet, is able to take upon himself on that cross all of our sin debt, past, present, future. Well, we can wrap up there. Have a great day, guys. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. Uh, right now in secular culture, we have a, a wider range of people who call themselves Christians, you know, maybe show up to church once, twice, a, once, twice a year. Usually that's around Christmas time or Easter time the, to be with family. But yet they claim that Jesus was this good guy. You know, he, he taught moral things. And, and as long as we just follow these rules, we're fine. What makes Jesus a good person? What makes Jesus good? Well, that's an interesting topic. Twofold, I think. Um, the number one being that he is 100% God and 100% man. And second fold, that he was actually good without being 100% God, but rather that trusting in God, he let the Holy Spirit lead his life and live without sin. Sin is, I want, I would, I would, I would equate it with the opposite of good, actually, the opposite of holiness, which is what you need to be near God. Mm -hmm. uh, even from Leviticus and Genesis, you see a separation of God through sin. If, if one act of sin creates an unholiness that spreads throughout the body and you can, you're, you're forever separated from God, and there is a sacrifice that is necessary to be near God because God demands holiness. Mm -hmm. Well, only a holy sacrifice can cleanse that, and that's mm -hmm. what Jesus was. Yeah. He, was he was holy. He was mm -hmm. good because of the lack of sin in his life and his mm -hmm. trust in God. A lot of people are saying, especially in agnostic or atheist circles, that, okay, yeah, Jesus was uh, Jesus was real. He, he was crucified. He was killed by the Jews, um, but he wasn't God. Can Jesus be good, a good teacher, a good person, and yet claim these things? Did actually, first off, did Jesus actually claim to be God? In Scripture, he did. Yeah, um, he absolutely did. And for probably 80% or more of those claims come from the Gospel of John. Hmm. which is really fascinating because it also explains why um, critical scholars have kind of declared war against the fourth gospel. Because if you can somehow marginalize it or silence it, then you only have to deal with about 15 to 20% of Jesus's direct 
deific claims. Mm. And so <clears throat> he, but he must uh, certainly does. He not only does it uh, in word, he does it in action mm. multiple times in which he um, very directly flies in the face of uh, popular understanding, popular teaching. Uh, a, a random illustration would be uh, when he's healing a man who's, who's blind and he kneels and he spits in the dirt and he forms clay and he, he spreads it over the man's eyes and then tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam and uh, Siloam being, uh, being sent. And so the man goes and does it. Well, there are a number of times that you see Jesus heal people. He doesn't touch them at all. He just take up your palate and go home, that sort of thing. So the question is, <clears throat> what, what's he doing here? What's, what's he trying to accomplish? And what he's actually doing, because in the Jewish culture, uh, not to preach a message, but but essentially in the Jewish culture, it's not a problem to make a medicine on the Sabbath day. It's not even a problem to apply a medicine on the Sabbath day. It's a problem to make and apply a medicine on the Sabbath day <laughs> because that is indicative of the creative works of God. And so Shabbat was set aside specifically because it was uh, it was reminiscent of the things that God did in the first six days of creation. And so you don't do any of those things on that seventh day. It's amazing how often you like to ruffle feathers, <laughs> you know? And, and so he doesn't just heal this guy on the Sabbath day. He kneels down much like you would Im- imagine in the garden in Genesis. And he fashioned the dust of the ground into Adam to begin with. Mm. And he reforms, if you will, the man's eyes Puts the spreads the mud over his eyes and then sends him. So he's essentially you know, saying, like, that this is my day. Yeah, I did this, and by the way, in case you're curious, I'm doing it again. That's awesome. <laughs> I have a piece of scripture here in uh, Luke chapter 22 when Jesus is uh, before the Sanhedrin. It says uh, in verse 66, when it was when it was when it was day, the council elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And then they said, What further do we need? What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth, hmm. claiming that he is the son of man and at the right hand of God is to almost equate himself with the father. Yeah. And in calling himself a part of the Godhead yeah. for them, that was unacceptable. And it is interesting because there's a, there's a, as Christendom's been around for over 2000 years now, there've been a lot of attempts to try to discredit or, or to uh, silence the idea that Jesus thought himself to be God hmm. at all. Um, the modern teaching in, in Judaism is that uh, <clears throat> that really all of the deific claims regarding Jesus came from Paul. And so they don't mind branding, actually they call him Saul, Saul a heretic because he was the, he was the Jewish rabbi who went just off the deep mm-hmm. end. And so now there's a big movement to reclaim the Jewish Jesus is what they'll, they'll refer to him as a, as a good rabbi, a good teacher, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, there's also, there's just been a, a number of uh, different odd efforts to try to discredit that. But uh, Larry Hurtado has got a book out. Um, I'm trying to, to remember the name of it. It's uh, How on Earth Did Jesus Become God or, or, or something along those lines. But, but essentially it's, it's the, the question of at what point did Jesus become God? How did he become known as God? And there's a chapter in there where he, he um, references Pliny the Younger. And if you're familiar with Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder was, was uh, the Younger's uncle who died in the uh, Vesuvius eruption. But uh, Pliny the Younger was actually a judge that served in the Roman Empire. And in one of his letters, he talks about the fact that they interrogated a number of these essentially Christians, though weren't always necessarily going by that title at the time, but followers of, of Jesus. And he he indicates, and I wish I had that in front of me so I could just quote it for you, but he indicates in there that in every single instance, even on on pain of death, the people referred to this Jesus as if he were God. Mm. 
and they revered him as God. Now, this is written in the, what, late 90s, wow. I think, AD. So the the popular myth on Discovery Channel and et cetera, et cetera, around this time of year is that Jesus wasn't even declared to be God until the Council of Nicaea in 325, which is is garbage because we have historical evidence that the earliest followers of Jesus held him to be divine. I even uh, got to read some reports of a, of a Roman centurion that was in charge of torturing these people. Mm-hmm. And he would, in his reports to his command, would say, these people stop praising this guy. Um, he never becomes a Christian, but he, he finds it perplexing that they're, they're singing to him, they're worshiping him. And this is in the right after... Um, uh, the apostles are sent out from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the letters are dated in the 60s. Well, yeah, one of the most famed uh, drawings in the catacombs where the, the Christians would hide during the time of intense persecution, earliest periods of the church, um, it shows a cross, and there's a man on the cross with the head of a donkey. And underneath it in Greek, it says, Alexemenos worships as God. And basically stating, here's a man who's worshiping his God as God died on a cross. And you're like, okay, so that was way before the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, there's just a lot of evidence that that well, was and even, popular belief. Even in Acts, I think it's in chapter 2 maybe, where uh, the Sanhedrin and Pharisees get together because uh, Peter and John decide to go and preach yeah. for the first time. and. They get together, and one of the wiser, older ones is uh, claims maybe we just shouldn't do anything about these guys because they're wanting to punish them and throw mm-hmm. them in jail and maybe even mm-hmm. kill them. And this guy stands up, he's like, maybe we just shouldn't ignore it because if we if it's really false, it's gonna peter out like everything else we've seen over the last two hundred years. If it's not, we might be on the wrong side of the fence <laughs> of this fight. <laughs> True, and that's a that's a paraphrase, obviously. Yeah. Well, so. Following the logic and, and the understanding that Jesus actually did claim to be God, if he's lying, if Jesus lied, even while claiming to be God, can he be a good person? Can he be a good teacher? Not by his definition. Why not? Because, I mean, Scripture teaches not to bear false witness, and so to do that would be to violate the very thing that he says this is law. I mean, anytime you have a contradiction, um, that's a problem. Mm. And yeah. And in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, he claims that do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mm-hmm. So he, he didn't come to go and break some, break some rules. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So then what is the error of thinking for, for those who may be listening and saying, you know what? I, I do think he was a good teacher. I do think he was a good person. I just don't agree. He was God. What's the error in that thinking? Well, the the error is not reading the Bible. And yeah. I mean, not to be too fine-pointed on it, but it's just true. We live in a generation, a time period, when uh, people get their information from Twitter and from Facebook mm. or from YouTube. And so... That's where I get all my theology. You know, <laughs> so they'll they'll hear someone say something, and if it sounds good at the moment, they run with it. Mm. And to them, it is gospel. Mm. And the tragedy is, if you actually took the time to read what Jesus says of himself, there's no mistaking that. You, you can't no read confusion. it and get a different opinion. No. Yeah. He was either, like the, like the book that was written, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Yeah. Mm. I think C.S. Lewis may be the one that originated that, yeah. Yeah. That's a- so in terms of, of the crucifixion, uh, when... When Jesus is sentenced, why is Jesus put upon the cross? Um, there, like you said, there's a lot of internet myths, whether from YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, um, documented from the Discovery Channel or History Channel that say it was all aliens. Why was Jesus put upon the cross? Is it merely because the Jews didn't like this guy? Well, there there are multiple things at play there. You've got there's a lot of layers to that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the Reformation didn't happen just because Martin Luther nailed some theses on a door in Wittenberg, Germany. <laughs> there was a there was sort of a perfect storm that was all pulling together. Hmm. The same thing happened um, when Jesus it comes time for his crucifixion. 
because you've got Pilate who is is essentially a he's a puppet ruler who's put in place by by Rome. And it's one thing for Rome to tell a man that he's in charge. It's another thing for him to show up to a group of people who don't want to be ruled and say, look, I'm in charge. And so, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. <laughs> and the expectation is either you're big enough for the job or you're not. And if you can't control these people, I'll get someone who can. So he's got pressure from Rome to make sure everything's quiet. And the Jews know it. And the Jews know it. And so there's, there's that tension. He's got to be a strong leader but it can't be too strong. Otherwise, there are other issues that come into play. And so um, Pilate's walking a, a very fine line there. Uh, at the same time, you also have the uh, the, the religious establishment. And I, I make a, a distinction there because the Gospel of John refers to them as the Jews. He's not talking about the Jewish people. Whenever he uses the term Jew, it's a term that's used specifically to identify the religious establishment of the day. Because the man, yeah, because John himself <laughs> is a Jew, mm-hmm. and so he's not anti-Semitic, contrary to all the different myths that are purported. He's opposed to a group of people who want to perpetuate a system and not actually follow God. And so those Jewish leaders have set themselves against who Jesus is for the purpose of destroying him. And um, so when they want to have him killed. They've got, they've got the ability that Rome's allowed them to be able to put someone to death. The mm. problem is they can't, they can't crucify him. They mm. really want to, they want to put him to death, but they want him to be put to death. Um, really miserably. In, well, yeah, in a way that it doesn't look like they did it. Oh, uh, yeah. So this way they can blame it on Pilate for putting him to death because Rome killed him. He's out of the way. He doesn't become a martyr because he's a, he's a criminal. And so the way everything is set up, um, they accuse him through multiple trials in, in this one evening um, of blasphemy, but none of those are a capital offense. Mm. So when they actually take him to Pilate and then repeatedly have the exchange back and forth, back and forth between them and Pilate, and Pilate doesn't want to have him crucified. And they finally, uh, they mention to Pilate, they make the statement, if he releases man, you're no friend of Caesar because Pilate wants to release him yeah. as opposed to a murderer named Barabbas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they say, you're and no he was friend. Claiming, they were claiming that he was claiming to be king. Right. Yeah. Can't have, can't have a king. <laughs> right. And, and so when they said uh, that you're no friend of Caesar, a friend of Caesar is a, is like a, it's like a special status. Mm-hmm. Like we have a most favored nation status from mm-hmm. our country to others. The same way, uh, a friend of Caesar is a special status that was bestowed upon Pilate. And for them to say, hey, uh, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar, meaning we're going to tell Caesar that you have allowed a man who's claimed to be the son of God, which wouldn't normally matter except that Caesar claimed to be the son of God. That's one of his titles. And so when you say he's the son of God, when Caesar's the son of God, and you say he's a king, those are conflicting things with... Uh, with Caesar, so you've, you've got a a little nation under your control, and one of your subjects essentially saying, "Hey, I'm better than you." Right. In, I, in I'm fact, the rightful ruler. I'm the rightful ruler. I yeah. deserve to sit on the throne. Which is sort of that dialogue you have between Jesus and Pilate in John's Gospel at mm. the end, where Pilate said, "Don't you understand? I've got the the power to put you to death." Amazing. And Jesus says, "Listen, you wouldn't have any power if I didn't give it. If the Father didn't give it to you." So, so understanding all of that. Was Jesus merely murdered by the Jews and by Rome, or was he sacrificed? Well, that comes back to the the uh, the perspective of the viewer. If you're if you're looking from the outside and you're totally um, dispassionate, you you have no connection to it whatsoever. You'd say this man was egregiously lied upon and and taken forcefully, put through a series of mock trials, and then ultimately crucified for no actual crime. That would, that would kind of constitute murder, at least in, in most of our thinking. It's for those who subscribe to the teachings of the Bible that we look at it and we understand exactly what God's intention was behind it and what Jesus' intention in the first place of even coming was that it was, it was necessary and even as ironically, as the high priest states at one point in the gospel, when he says, uh, 
you don't know anything. Don't you realize that it's that it's expedient that one man die rather than the entire nation? And speaking, in fact, that John goes ahead at that time because it's in the Gospel of John to identify that the priest says that not because he saw it himself, but because he's serving in a capacity of high priest, indicating that God placed that word within him to speak that as a prophetic truth in the moment to say that the man is going to die on the cross isn't just dying for himself, but ultimately mm. for all the people. Mm. And so it, it's really it's the, the fulfillment of all of Scripture mm. that the only means by which sins could be forgiven was that one man would die so that our sins would be placed upon him. Why do Christians, instead of saying, you know, he was murdered, why do we identify Christ as the sacrifice? Um, and there's a lot of Old Testament prophecy that, that points to him. I wonder if you can flesh those out a little bit. What claims do, does Jesus make that, that shows us that, hey, this is the guy that we've been looking for? Oh, there's a really good piece of imagery in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 27, when Christ cries out his last words. In verse 48, it says, Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And earth shook and rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints had fallen and that were fallen were raised. And it's a really good piece of imagery of the veil being torn in the temple because that veil was there to protect the Israelite people from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in Leviticus. And what that symbolizes is that that system is, is no longer needed mm. because Christ's death allows the Holy Spirit to enter uh, mm. inside us and become a part of us rather than us just being around it and, ha and needing all of these different rules to to make sure that we're not just going to be put to death <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if we're exposed to it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that have come out in recent years, especially with uh, more popular um, speakers like Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, um, has said that if God originates the cross, he's a cosmic child abuser. <laughs> Did God originate the cross? Because it, it looks like it's Rome. Or as as historians have said, that uh, Assyrians created the crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. Mm. Um, so, who originated the cross, and caught, and did God cause Jesus to be crucified? Those are great questions. Uh, probably more difficult to answer in one interview than, yeah. but uh, but uh, as best I can. <laughs> that um, stems from a philosophical God, perspective. God is the master of taking things that we have and, and experience every single day and using those to accomplish his purpose so that we can understand what he's doing. I mean, if you've got an infinite God who's truly infinite and his ways and thinking are, are truly infinite, and yet we recognize we're finite, how do you take infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge and truth and compress it into a finite person or to, to understand it's it's incredibly difficult i mean I, I can't even imagine so what he does is sort of the old adage uh, a picture is worth a thousand words he uses a lot of pictures in the old testament he establishes the sacrificial system and the the tabernacle the establishment of the tabernacle all of that to be a picture whereby we can understand who jesus actually came to be uh, who he was, who he came to be, what he came to do, and uh, who he is even today. And so um, part of that process even begins back in the garden when uh, when Adam and Eve first sin and God sets them outside of the garden. But first he clothes them with an animal skin. Well, he didn't grow an animal skin. He killed an animal to take the skin off of it to put it on, on uh, his, his, uh, the pinnacle of his creation, which was mankind. And so by virtue of that, he kind of set in motion the, the idea, even though it's not stated right there, it's stated in Leviticus 17, but right there it's not stated, but that it takes the shedding of blood to cover sins. To cover, not to remove, but to cover initially. When you get to the establishment of the tabernacle and all the sacrificial systems and everything that takes place there, the idea is that those animals that are slaughtered 
their blood is shed because Leviticus 17 says life is in the blood. And so it's, it's life for life, the life of the animal for the life of the human. And so that blood is shed continually because it doesn't have the ability to remove the sins. It only has the ability to cover it. So how does that play out for us? I mean, how do we think of it? Charles Stanley, who I have immense respect for, um, shared an illustration years ago that I think is just it's, it's perfect. Uh, and it's basically it's a credit system. And he said, essentially what's happened is the, the killing of those animals was kind of like um, putting all of the offenses of mankind prior to Jesus on a charge account. They just kept charging it, charging. Every time that you slaughtered an animal, it was a reminder, this is the penalty of sin. It's death, life for life. But it didn't have the ability to pay off the account. It just had it swiped the card, swiped the card, swiped the card. So they did that for all those years to the day that Jesus comes. Mm. And when Jesus comes, because he's man, man can die for man. Animal can't die for man. So his blood has to be shed life for life. But his blood being the, the blood of a man, the blood of a human, is uniquely suited, especially since he's sinless, is uniquely suited to be able to expunge the account not only past sins, but all future sins as well. And so he pays off the account. And so that's a, essentially um, kind of a very truncated version, but that's what he does. So stemming from that, what does the cross actually accomplish on behalf of the Christian? Well, it accomplishes a lot of things. Um, one, it's the, the tool by which our sins are forgiven. That Jesus actually accomplishes that. It's also, as John points out for us in John 19, it's the establishment of a new community. Jesus uh, takes that moment, the point of his death, as the as the the means of the launching, the inauguration of a new kind of community. Someone said that the church actually begins the day of Pentecost. I think actually the church begins at the cross. Because it's there that Jesus looks at two people who are not related. He looks at John and and his mother, Mary, and he says, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And from that day, those two people are united in a union that's kind of contrasted to John 2, where you have the uh, wedding at Cana of Galilee, but that's a discussion for another time. But the thought is, this is a new kind of a community. And so it's on the basis of the cross that we have this new community. It's on the basis of the cross that we have forgiveness of our sins, the blood and the water that flows from Jesus' side, the blood signifying the removal of our sins, the, the water signifying the removal of our impurity. So it, it does essentially everything. Mm. The resurrection, just as one old preacher said, is the exclamation point on the end of it, or kind of a God's amen to Jesus is to tell us, die, it's finished. The, the point of the resur- the point of the resurrection, the point of Easter, is the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. If Christ is not resurrected, are Christians still saved? No, I mean there, there's no hope. I mean, if the you, you have redemption that's accomplished on the cross, but if it stops there, there's no there's no hope. There's no purpose beyond it. I mean you breathe your last breath in this life and it's just done. Mm. But because there's a bodily uh, resurrection, a physical resurrection of Jesus, that's what gives us hope. And, and the interesting thing with some of the heresies that have come out in, in recent centuries kind of indicated this idea that, that uh, Jesus, while he's on the cross, he's taken off the cross, he's put in the grave, and he's there for three days. And actually what happens is that he descends into hell and uh, and that while during that in, in between time that we don't hear anything that he's down there uh, suffering eternity in hell for us, and then that's a, a very popular uh, teaching in in the charismatic movement and that when he comes out on the resurrection that uh, he's comes out with the keys of of hell and everything's uh, finished at the resurrection, which has a is, is incredibly problematic because when Jesus is on the cross and he says it's finished, he says it emphatically not it will be finished or it's about to be finished. Hold on guys, just for about three more days and I'll, I'll take care of everything. And everything's going to be cool. <laughs> he said, no, it's finished. So it's a, it's a, it's a victory statement. Mm. And he done. tells the, uh, the felon beside him yeah, today, today we will be together in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, mm-hmm. not 
not Monday. <laughs> right. Today. <laughs> can, can you pencil me in? <laughs> so the the resurrection, as Paul says, that if, if the resurrection doesn't happen, we should be most pitied. Mm-hmm. What hope does a resurrection give the Christian? Every hope. I, I mean, you guys know I lost my son a few years ago. And one of the things that that really changed for me around that time was my appreciation for the resurrection. Because, you know, I back in uh, 1984, I think it was, we lost our house to a fire. And I had all sorts of well-intentioned people who would gather around us as we were watching going up in flames and saying, you know, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine. And uh, none of that really resonated with me. Until my dad looked at me and said, we're going to rebuild this. We're going to get it all back. Now we didn't get everything back, but it was the idea that we were going to get back our home. And that comforted me in a way that none of the other, you know, because good intention people just say good intention things and you just kind of brush it off because you're like, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you're not me. You're not with me in this. But having someone who knew who I had confidence in, tell me that I was going to receive back the thing I lost really made a difference with Jesus telling us that he's the first fruits of the resurrection and that because he raised from the dead, we too will raise from the dead. It gives me the confidence that my son will one day rise from the dead and that one day I'll be able to hug him. I'll be able to see him and know that death doesn't have the last laugh that it's, it's a pause for a period of time. But one day, we'll get to see each other again face-to-face. Food for thought. Do you think we'll have memories in heaven of earth? Man, that's a great question. I don't know. Hmm. It'd be hard to recognize people if you don't have memories. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, there's... I mean, I, I would suspect, but... I, I'm not saying I have an it, answer. Right, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> curious. I've thought about it before. Yeah. I feel I, like we would. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. I kind of well, want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to bring it full circle, why is it important for Christians to have a right view of the cross and have a right view of Jesus, especially concerning Easter? Hmm. Well, I, I think because if there's ever a time that you're going to, to really uh, understand what the gospel is, and and really have that drive driven home, it's going to be right now. And we look at the world around us that's lost and trying to redefine everything and, and figure everything out. And the the one absolute we have is the Word of God. And what it, it depicts from cover to cover is that God's perfect plan for a sinful fallen man is that he would send his son to die for us. Mm-hmm. But the glory in all of that is not that he just died or that he was buried, but that because he lives, we can live with the same type of resurrection power he lives with. And, and so the Holy Spirit now lives within us to revive us. Though we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul would say, separated from God and from the promises of God, um, now we have a new life in Christ. Hmm. And so we're empowered to live rightly. So I think for a believer who doesn't understand that, they end up not having a, an active, ongoing, daily relationship with Christ. They have something they subscribe to distantly, or maybe a, they're a member of a, an organization, like they're a member of the Lions Club or Optimist Club, nothing wrong with those organizations, but they can't save you. Mm-hmm. And so being a part of a church from that type of perspective does nothing for you. But it's the person who understands that the cross is the means by which you are brought into right standing with God, and it's the resurrection is the power by which you live that life that changes everything. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me on today's podcast. If you have a topic that you'd like to hear talked about here on Northern Hills Baptist Podcast, you can email those topics to C and hbcweb.org, and your topic might be discussed here on the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Northern Hills Baptist Church, you can go online to nhbcweb.org. Or if you'd like to learn more about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, you can go online to mbts.edu. Thanks for tuning in. Have a happy Easter. When the darkness closes in.